immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hi folks, so thanks for coming back. Um, I've had an amazing first couple of weeks um, with a total of 67 plays. Um, so thank you all so, so much for that. All who listened, all who shared, etc. That's more than I ever could have wished for. Um, so it's been a good couple of weeks. Um, now, I wanted to share a couple of bits of news in the little intro here, um, just to sort of open up the episode. Um, the first bit is, is really sad. Um, you might have seen the news this past couple of weeks where four gorillas in a Ugandan national park actually sadly passed away um, after being struck by lightning. Um, so I hope those guys are, you know, resting peacefully. Um, it was three adult females and one, one male child, um, which is incredibly sad. Um, but I'm just glad it wasn't, you know, the, the the only silver lining, I guess, that we can take from that is that it wasn't poachers. It was a freak natural thing, which is still terribly sad to lose four individuals from such an endangered species. But, um, yeah, so I just wanted to sort of let you all know that and, and to remember those guys. Um, but in the interest of remaining positive... Um, I saw another news story this week um, on some research that was actually first reported in 2012, um, but it came up on my radar, like up on my news feed again um, this week, so I thought I'd share it with you because it always makes me smile. Um, and if you follow me on my new Instagram, you may have already seen um, that it was the story of gorillas dismantling poachers' snares and traps themselves. Yay! Um, so juveniles have even been seen doing it, um, gorillas as young as four years old, um, and that was seen at Karasoke Research Centre. Never heard? of it hey yeah um so i just thought that was pretty badass and wanted to share that again um and it just shows such a level of learning in in these these individuals um and they may have they may they think that they may have even learned it um through watching the center's trackers doing the same same thing um so yeah that made me smile so i wanted to to share that with you um yeah so that's my news um, oh, and as I just mentioned, my new Instagram, I now have an Instagram, an email and a Twitter for the podcast. I'm feeling sort of fully set up now. Um, so I will tell you those handles at the end. Um, and the they are also in the show notes um, for this episode. Um, OK, so now it's time to announce the species in the spotlight this episode. And it is the Mauritius Kestrel. kestrel story. So this little falcon is endemic to the island with which it shares its name, um, Mauritius. <laughs> it exists in the forests, cliffs and ravines of the southwestern plateau of Mauritius. Um, so they don't have a massive habitat area. It's quite quite a small sort of um, specific area in which in which they exist. Um, so they didn't have sort of like a massive span of area anyway to begin with. Um, and they're small little babies, sort of small to medium birds of prey. They stand around 26 to 30 centimetres tall, about as tall as your 
regular ruler um, with a 45 centimeter wingspan um, so not huge birds of prey um, but lovely cute little guys um, and easily distinguishable as well with their coloring so their crest their chests sorry they're a creamy white color um, with all sort of black speckles all over them um, and the interesting thing about these guys as well is that they have rounded wingtips not like other falcons where it's that typical sort of pointy splay of feathers that you see in the sky these guys have rounded wings uh, making them even cuter um, so their decline in numbers and why um, so typically these guys started to decline when human colonization of Mauritius really blew up when the Dutch arrived around 350 years ago um, and it took those guys circa 300 years up until 1974 to have almost driven these guys to extinction with and this this number is incredible this is just it blew my mind so there was in 1974 just four known individuals still alive four and only one of those individuals was a breeding female like it's 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 insane to me that these guys are still around and that i'm talking about them today <laughs> in their conservation success um so how did it happen? How did it happen that they got to such tiny numbers? Um, of course, mass deforestation of Mauritius by the Dutch was a large factor, as it always is. Um, but also in this case, invasive species played their own role in a decline in the numbers. Um, so an invasive species is basically just one which is not native to that specific location in which it's now existing in. And they have a tendency um, to cause environmental damage. Um, and often these animals are introduced by us um shocking i know um as was the case here um so when the dutch colonized colonized the island they brought with them animals like cats mongooses mongooses monkeys mongooses yeah we're going with mongooses uh monkeys and rats um and they began to populate the island um spread rapidly and they would predate on the eggs um and the young kestrels and actually even started to predate the adult mauritius kestrels um so those are factors that led to their decline, but a big pronounced decline happened in the 1950s and the 1960s when DDT came into widespread use on the island, mainly due to a malaria outbreak. Um, so DDT is a chemical pesticide and it was used to try and mitigate the disease effects on the human population. Now, some of you may, heard of D may have heard of DDT before, um, but if not, then I shall tell you a little bit more about this horrible stuff. So, I'm going to try and say the full name here, and I will go slowly. So, DDT stands for dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. So, dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, which, you know, if anything has a name that long, it can't be good, right? Like, it sounds all horrible even just saying it um so this stuff is a colorless tasteless and odorless chemical compound that was originally developed as an insecticide um by 1945 it was available for sale as an agricultural and mind-blowingly a household pesticide people can use this in their houses crazy right um so originally when it was developed it was used to great effect in world war ii to to control insect vectors of disease there um and it was so effective that it pretty much eliminated typhus in uh, many parts of europe um typhus by the way not to be confused with typhoid fever typhus is different um so therefore they thought it would be good for malaria um and it does you know it does it's effective and it is actually still used in several several african countries india and north korea um but since its development it has become infamous for its environmental impacts um 
and its environmental impacts were first sort of really explored and brought to the public forefront um, thanks to the book called Silent Spring by Rachel Carson and I recommend giving that a read if anyone wants to um, know more about DDT, its effects um, and sort of how it was discovered that it was a really bad stuff. Um, so Rachel, her friend actually wrote to her a letter um, describing the death of all of the birds around her property when she started or when the, the local authorities started spraying DDT. Um, and she thought it was weird. And, you know, it was hence the name Silent Spring. There was no bird song anymore. Um, so this prompted Carson, um, who was a scientist who worked with, with the government um, on the environment. Um, it prompted her to study the environmental effects of this this chemical pesticide and chemical pesticides generally. Um, and the book highlights the effects that it had on wildlife and the killing off that it had on vast swathes of wildlife, particularly birds of prey. Um, and question the logic allowing the wide sale and spread of a barely investigated chemical. Um, of course, Monsanto was one of the first companies um, to to develop this stuff. Um, so the book basically, in a nutshell, showed that um, DDT and other pesticides have been shown to cause cancer, um, health problems in people, and that their agricultural use was a threat to wildlife, in particular birds. Um, so that was sort of like a groundbreaking piece of literature, really. Um, so DDT, what is it um, and what does it do? As I said, it's chemical pesticide. Um, it's a persistent organic pollutant. Um, it's readily absorbed. Sorry, put my teeth in. It's readily absorbed into soils and sediments. Um, so that acts as a sink for this chemical and a long-term source of it. Um, so it, it, it just means it stays in, in the environment where it's sprayed for a hell of a long time. And it stays in soils and it stays in waterways. And it takes huge amounts of time to break down. Um, DDT or can also bioaccumulate, especially in predatory birds, um, which means it just it builds up within the organism, it builds up within the animal, um, and that sort of happens through the food chain. It magnifies through the food chain. So your apex predators, like raptor birds, like like birds of prey, um, the chemical becomes more concentrated in them than other animals in the same environment as they eat the animals within the food chain in their particular habitat. Um, and yes, so it's obviously not good for a toxic chemical to be building up in a living thing. Um, and just to show, you know, that it, it lasts for such a long time. So despite being banned for many years in Europe, um, in 2018, research showed that DDT residues are actually still present in European soils and Spanish rivers. Um, so, yeah, it's just nasty stuff. We don't like it. Um and as well as those toxic effects and the build-up in the food chain, it also causes eggshell thinning, um, which obviously means that the young won't survive. The egg is there to um, to develop that young bird, um, and if we're thinning, they'll just die. Um, so this actually, this eggshell thinning actually led to population declines in many North American and European birds of prey species, as well as the Mauritius kestrel. Um, and as I said, yeah, birds of prey are particularly sensitive um, to these effects, uh, more susceptible than things like chickens and fowl and stuff like that. Um, and as I mentioned, also carcinogenic in humans. Um, so in 1972, it was banned in the USA um, with good reason. Um, it's The banning of it actually led to the comeback of the bald eagle and the peregrine falcon in the US. Um, major factors in their, in their comeback, which um, I will probably touch on in future episodes in a bit more depth. Um, but it's just interesting little tidbit to know that there. 
Um, so in 2004, a formalised worldwide ban on its use as a pesticide um, was brought into play, um, but obviously the damage had already been done. Um, and as I mentioned, these days it is actually still used in India, African countries and North Korea, um, just as a solution to malaria spread, um, not as a pesticide anymore. Um, but yeah, gross, horrible, nasty stuff. And that is what led to a massive, massive decline in the Mauritius kestrel, leading to, as I said, just four little babies left. Um, so what did it actually take for a conservation success story to come from this dire situation? And in Mauritius as well, um, an island that is infamous for the ill-fated dodo. Um, so what happened was conservationists decided that the four individuals left was simply a not-on. So my old mate Gerald Durrell um, helped his mate Carl Jones establish a wildlife sanctuary in Mauritius on Ile de Agretz, um, and formed the Mauritius Wildlife Foundation. So Gerald Durrell, he's a British, or oh, sorry, he was a British naturalist, zookeeper and conservationist, author, television presenter, a man of many talents, a jack of all trades. Um, but the He's so famous in the conservation world as he founded the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust and Jersey Zoo on the Channel Island, Jersey, in 1959. Um, and that wildlife trust has gone on to save many species from extinction around the world. I have a soft spot for them, having done some research with them for my university undergrad. Um, and yeah, he's just a bit of a hero in the conservation world. And it's funny because he came from a background as a zookeeper, you know, going out and taking species from the wild to be kept in the zoos as specimens. And now his trust has saved so many species from extinction. And so it just just goes to show how times change um, and how we learn and develop always. Um, so I think that's quite, quite interesting. Um, and Carl Jones, so his mate, <laughs> that he helped uh, form the Mauritius Wildlife Foundation. Um, he's a Welsh conservationist biologist um, and he works for Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust um, still and since 1985 and he was the founding member of the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation. Um, okay, so what they did together, um, Carl Jones and his his band of merry men on the island on Ile de Gretz in um, Mauritius, the approach was absolutely revolutionary for its time so normally at this point in time when people are working on getting a species to grow in population um the efforts were always focused on habitat restoration but that really that wasn't possible in mauritius because it would have been such a huge task there was such a level of degradation um that it just wasn't possible so instead the way they approached this conservation program um it focused primarily on increasing the population of the species itself um, with breeding efforts. So initially the eggs were taken from the wild nests and hatched within an incubator um, and following and growing from that um, further captive breeding that was absolutely essential to the program's success. Um, so many groundbreaking techniques were used within the captive breeding um, such as cross fostering which is basically uh, the animal raised by a surrogate hand rearing and release of captive bred and captive reared birds um, as well as as I said before the artificial incubation um, and then provision of nest boxes for wild birds and continued management in the wild. Um, this cross fostering as well happens um, so that 
the birds can an egg can be removed from the bird once they've laid it and then they can pretty much go on to lay another one um straight after um and they made sure that their diets were supplemented to enable them to do this and also obviously to make sure that the welfare of the birds was maintained um so eggs and nestlings are still removed from nests in the wild and they're still artificially incubated um and the young ones were then made available to be released into the wild eventually when they'd grown up and and healthy um healthy juveniles um so the release of captive bred and captive reared birds in the remaining endemic forests of mauritius proved to be a significant success and more than 75 percent of the birds released in the wild became independent yay and further to this those birds were seen to have a high mating rate so all of these efforts led to just in 1994 so just less than 20 years after the start of the project a free living population of the mauritius kestrel had been attained so from four individuals less than 20 years later with these efforts there existed a population that was free living within the wild and could breed and sustain itself and that same year the iucn um which as we touched on in the last episode is the international union for the conservation of nature they promoted the species from critically endangered to endangered, and then six years after that, in 2000, the species' status again was lifted, this time to vulnerable. So, since the introduction of the conservation programme in 1974, the population of the Mauritius kestrel has continued to increase. And now, it's estimated that 800 to 1,000 individuals are presently living in the forests of Mauritius. How amazing is that? From four to 800 to 1,000. Amazing. Incredible. So now um, there's not actually active management of the kestrels, um, but they are constantly monitored. Um, so there's sort of like not that intervention from people, but we're just the, the Wildlife Foundation and the researchers are out there are monitoring the species and making sure that they're OK um, and that they're, they're still doing well um, as a safeguard of the population rather than sort of actively getting involved to increase the numbers because they're managing to do it themselves. Yay. Um, so, as I said, the recovery program was implemented with Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, which is actually the only NGO in Mauritius protecting the endangered endemic plants and animals, um, the government of Mauritius with their national parks and conservation services, um, with support from the Peregrine Fund and also ZSL, Zoological Society of London, um, have also been closely involved in the Mauritius Kestrel Project um, and with the monitoring, the continued monitoring of the species. So all of that news is amazing um, and gives me joy to hear. Uh, but the status of the Mauritius kestrel is likely to remain vulnerable. Um, just due to the relatively small population of the species, the Mauritius kestrel is pretty much always going to be at risk. Um, and the small area in which it lives. So chance events like, you know, tropical cyclones or, you know, if a disease broke out, it could, it could have a hugely detrimental impacts on the po entire population which is why they will remain vulnerable um but that's not to put any doom and gloom on the success of the conservation effort that brought the mauritius kestrel pretty much back from the dead this dedicated conservation approach and techniques that hadn't been used before they were put into practice and proved their worth bore their fruit here we have a surviving species 
Yes, and the fauna manager of the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation currently is a guy called Dr. Nicholas Zool. And he has said himself that the great success of the conservation programme was due to the conservation approach of the endeavour and the sheer effort and dedication of the conservationists of the time. So again, these passionate people coming together and just, as I said, saying this isn't on, we're going to do something about it, and they bloody well did. So these conservation techniques employed in the programme um, they've also been successfully put into practice in conservation projects for other Mauritian birds. Um, so Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust has also had a massive hand in saving the pink pigeon and the echo parakeet from the brink of extinction as well. The populations of these endangered birds um, were also at incredibly low levels um, and they were, they were brought back by Durrell, um, which, as I said, I have such a soft spot for because they've just done such amazing work in the field of in the world of conservation. Um, and I will definitely feature both the pink pigeon and the echo parakeet in future episodes. And there's other species um, such as the Madagascan foddy, um, the plowshare tortoise, um, which is also from Madagascar, that Durrell have also pretty much saved from extinction. So I will be talking about them a lot and I'll be talking about the species that they've they've saved a lot. Um Yes, so together, the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation and Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, the work that they carried out in Mauritius is without a doubt one of the world's most successful conservation stories. They brought this bird back from extinction, once known as the rarest bird in the world, um, and they saved it. And the MWF, the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, it still continues with its island restoration efforts, um, and it uses local employment, as well and um, so it promotes local capacity building um, and they continue to flourish as a strong vibrant and innovative organization over there in Mauritius um, yes so that story just makes me super happy and I still can't believe it saying that from four individuals they're still alive and thriving today thanks to the interventions of these wonderful amazing people thanks to Carl Jones and Gerald Dorrell the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation and all the guys out there who put they're all into this bird um so yeah i hope i hope you enjoyed that little story as much as i did um and please do google mauritian kestrel because they are really cute little guys um follow my instagram and there will be a picture of them on there as well um yeah it just makes me smile so much and not a lot of people know about the mauritius kestrel um yeah so i wanted to share that story with you all and i hope you enjoyed listening Okay, it is time for fun facts about the Mauritius kestrel. So, fun fact number one. They are the only bird of prey remaining in Mauritius. Woo, you go guys. Fun fact number two. Their diet consists of geckos, lizards, shrews, insects and small birds. And the Mauritius kestrel is well known for its carnivorous feeding habits. And they prey on their food by flying through the forest and diving, catching their prey or chasing their prey from the ground, interestingly. Fun fact number three. The Mauritius kestrels are monogamous birds throughout the process of breeding. Aww. They breed during the month of November and December and they can have up to five eggs at a single time. And fun fact number four, and I like this one personally, the females are usually slightly bigger than the males. Yeah, 
unusual in the bird world. You go, girls. <laughs> and following on from our fun facts, I will now introduce our guest for this episode. So our guest is Emily Linney. Emily Linney is my good friend who I met and lived with at university, along with Rosie the rabbit, the sassiest rabbit I ever did meet. Emily studied zoobiology and during her degree travelled to Mauritius itself to act as a research assistant for the Wildlife Foundation, which she will tell us all about shortly. Following that, she completed her Masters in Ecology, Evolution and Conservation at Imperial College London. Currently, she still now lives and works in London as an ecologist. So, let's chat to Emily. Okay, so I just did a little introduction there for Emily, and she's sat across from me now. Um, as I said in the intro, we met at university, where I was doing animal biology, and she was uh, doing zoo biology, wasn't it? It wasn't yeah. zoology. Yeah, correct. Zoo biology, yes. yeah. And that was at Nottingham Trent, um, and we lived together with her little, well, her large rabbit, yeah. Rosie. <laughs> um, and now she is a ecologist living in London, or, well... Croydon. <laughs> Some argue it's not London, but it is London. Um, yes, and so she's kindly agreed to speak to me today um, about the work that she's done in the past um, and, yeah, just about the environment and conservation in general. So here she is. Here is Emily. Hi. <laughs> um, so, yes, so the species I talked about before the interview was the Mauritius kestrel um, and I know that you went to Mauritius in during university wasn't it um, yeah. yes so I wondered if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about Mauritius and the work that you did out there yeah so uh, we worked with uh, Lagon Bleu uh, and the Mauritius uh, Wildlife Foundation um, and we um, did sort of, a, sort of an accumulation of different bits and bobs with them um, so we did a bit on the island of Eel Oxagrets, um, where we were looking at telfair uh, skink populations, um, and we also looked at um, invasive um, uh, uh, African land snails, um, and looked at um, uh, what effect um, invasive species were having on uh, populations there uh, and also looked at uh, analog species um, so uh, large um, tortoises uh, were wiped out from uh, Mauritius uh, and then they brought some other large tortoises over uh, to do the same job that the tortoises were doing before, uh, which is basically all the seeds that they consume um, have to pass through the um, uh, digestive system <laughs> <laughs> to be active. Um, so if they weren't active, then there just wasn't enough regeneration um, of the sort of natural fauna there, uh, flora. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and um uh, we also did uh, a microplastics um, survey as well, so we were looking at what plastics were um, along the beach and along the uh, sort of shallower areas uh, of the water. Um, and that was, because it was quite a while ago now, wasn't it? So when mm. microplastics weren't sort of 
when it's such to. a big thing mm. yeah so what what did you find from that is it still loads uh, like <laughs> yeah uh, and i'm sure it's probably worse now as well but we we must have had a sort of so we did a sort of crawling of the beach mm. um so we big long line of people uh some in the water some on the sand um and just sort of um pouring through and picking up all the bits of uh waste mm. um and it was just everywhere and like tiny little bits mm. of plastic as well which yeah it's just if you've got filter feeders or anything like that you just scround up <laughs> inside yes. um uh yeah so that was that was very interesting a lot of fishing nets and things like mm. that as well caught on yeah. coral and things like that um and we also looked at bleaching of the mm. corals um and sort of monitored the fish populations of the uh, coral reefs around the island um which was not not great results um so once bleaching has started on a coral then it's quite difficult for the uh, coral to regenerate um there's been sort of coral translocation and sort of um artificial mm -hmm. uh coral reefs um so is that essentially so almost like the breeding of a coral elsewhere and then bringing it to that location yeah. to hope that it takes off there yeah so once once you start bleaching of the coral it sort of spreads through the coral and then you also lose the fish populations so mm. then the coral can't regenerate mm. without the fish populations mm. um so it's, it's all, a catch 22 yeah. kind of situation <laughs> as soon as one's knocked out mm it all sort of um, starts falling apart. So if you can bring the coral back in, mm -hmm. um, then uh, you find much better results. Um, um, so the foundation over there, are they, obviously you were studying it, are they yeah. doing things, do you know sort of like how successful they're being in what they're trying to do, bringing things back? Like are the tortoises... Are they doing the job? <laughs> Is the translocation working? Do you know how it was going? Um, so I can't speak specifically for uh, Mauritius because um, I haven't been back there. <laughs> um, but um, the tortoises were doing their job. That was a really successful analog species. Mm -hmm. So they weren't. There wasn't any sort of negative side effects associated Yay. with bringing them in which is good because um uh, you know we've always had sort of historical cases where we think we're doing something <laughs> good and bring something over to yeah uh, control something else or do a certain ecological mm -hmm. job uh, and it just ends up causing mayhem like rabbits in australia yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> oops um yeah uh, so tortoises were good um, and then I've heard from wider sources that the translocations and stuff of corals has been really good. Um, yeah, they also sort of help with flood defences as well. Mm, yeah. So um, I think they're being actively um, 
encouraged around a lot of um, areas like the Seychelles and places that are losing mm. um, sort of mangroves and places mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, Did Mauritius have mangrove forests? Don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so you may be able to hear my dog growling. <laughs> Sure, what at? At nothing, mm. probably. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, in, in Madagascar we had um, mangrove forests and they were just so super interesting um, mm. for like the nursery for fishes and for that natural defence of like tsunamis and, <clears throat> and natural disasters yeah. like that. And so important to keep them, but people were just ploughing into them for the wood, it was easy to get. And in Madagascar yeah. they were kind of using them as a bit of a toilet as well, <laughs> which yeah. was unfortunate and also we didn't find that out until we'd been swimming and wading through them mm, for a little while so that was nice <laughs> but we did like environmental awareness days with the village to sort of explain why looking after their mangroves is good for them their own mm. personal fishing their artisanal fishing vessels because without the mangroves you won't get the fish you won't get the nursery for the fish yeah. to, to grow um and so it's good for themselves in the long run and they yeah they were latched onto it and they really wanted to know more about it and um, and then from there they took part in like bi-monthly beach cleans so they were picking up all the plastics and stuff yeah. on the beach which I'm pretty sure that project still runs those um, I see it shared around on social media so that little area of the world is doing pretty well with with keeping their beaches clean which is nice <laughs> yeah I think it's it's something that all across the world we need to do um, and the trouble obviously with um, sort of ocean plastics as mm. well is that where they get into the water is not necessarily where they end up. Exactly, yeah. In Madagascar, we found yeah. a McDonald's straw on the beach, and the yeah. closest one is South Africa. Like, there's yeah. no McDonald's on Madagascar. Yeah. Then, I don't know if that's still true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's it's quite a sad thing, and I think it um, really highlights how much, um, like, it's our world and mm. our imp what we do impacts mm. other people that we'll never meet and, mm. you know, are completely separated from. But if we don't dispose of our fishing nets and things like that, then they will end up um, yeah. <laughs> on someone else's beaches and cause problems for other places' mm. wildlife. Um, I think that's really important, yeah. Thank you for saying that. I think that's a really good message to to sort of drive home to yeah. people. And the Western countries, we're the ones with the with the power as well, aren't we? And the money, yeah, to, to make a difference. Yeah. And we we have such good, um, you know, recycling and disposal um, of waste um, across the country. Um, you know, like nobody has waste that they can't get rid of there's always mm. places which will be able to do it yeah um so it's just being responsible and don't litter yes and, you know if you're taking a picnic to the beach or whatever you know think about is that gonna blow away <laughs> <laughs> am i gonna like, be running yeah. after it down the beach <laughs> yeah i'm just um yeah sort of just being responsible um yeah, yeah. good and talking about like our own countries, um, mm. which for us is the UK, um, that leads me nicely into asking you about um, your sort of current work at the moment um, um, with UK species and UK protected species um, and working with those little guys in your position as an ecologist. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um. t- talk to me. Tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, so I'm an ecologist um, and I work for an engineering company. Um, so I mainly work with developments um, and we look into um, how to do a development responsibly and abide by our wildlife laws. Um, so in the UK we ha are sort of governed by both uh, UK um, policies uh, as well as uh, European policies um, for, well, <laughs> for however long. Yeah, so <laughs> until they bring in the environment bill, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Watch this space on that yeah. one. <laughs> Could be out of date soon. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, so that offers different levels of protection um, to uh, species. Um, and I think it's really important to remember to apply what we do uh, for protected species um, as sort of umbrella species so that they're protecting the whole habitats that they're in. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we work with uh, otters and waterfalls, badgers, uh, great crested newts, dormice. Yeah, as well as um, what we sort of determine as black priorities uh, species <laughs> and habitats. Um, so that will um, entail um, like uh, brown hair. Um, and pine martin mm -hmm. and things like that, mm -hmm. um, which have, so we've got different levels of protection for species mm -hmm. um, and it's all sort of interwritten into our um, planning um, and permissions um, for developments, uh, which is a really good way of uh, making sure that we comply um, mm -hmm. and that we're thinking about how we could do a development better, how can we build it more sustainably. Mm. Um, Which going forwards are things that everybody mm. in whatever realm of work you were in needs to be thinking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> um, so we try and build sort of resilience into things. So um, we do a lot of road schemes and things like that um and do just... you ever like get involved with like green highways and things like that like the little green bridges that allow wildlife to cross safely um does that sort of come or would that come under your remit yes yeah so uh we do work on green bridges um so green bridges are quite a nice design mm. feature um where you your you create your road into a sort of cutting uh, and then you build up uh, a, a bridge of um and then you plant up on the bridge mm -hmm. so that you're allowing uh wildlife to cross uh, which is a really good idea for whenever you're putting something through that's gonna sever connectivity mm -hmm. um because Habitat fragmentation is just as bad as yeah. destruction, isn't it, essentially? Especially for wide roaming species. Yeah, and we're like our towns and cities are expanding mm -hmm. um, and we're 
trying to make sure that um, we're all better connected, um, which involves sort of new roads and new mm. rail and things like that. Um, but it's uh, important to sort of embed in designing mm. um, consideration for wildlife like green bridges so that you've got connectivity um, and making sure that what you build uh, is fit for purpose and it's also fit for the future mm-hmm. um, and that you're not going to have to come back in 20 years time and do the whole something thing. similar yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. then we shall move along <laughs> so yeah what can I talk beavers <laughs> let's talk yeah. about beavers reintroducing um, them into the UK yeah which is a so, recent lovely story in the news yeah so there are a number of um authorised releases of uh, beavers into um, the wild, um, which have been going really well, really positive feedback, um, and sort of helped with sort of concerns that were like Mm. flooding and things like that caused from beavers building their dams, Mm. um, which um, actually tends to work out better yeah. so reducing flooding mm, I thought I thought yeah they should um, have the opposite effect yeah, yeah so I think the concern is through badger's mind uh, through beaver's <laughs> minds they're not necessarily thinking about a farmer or what a town <laughs> uh, they're just thinking this will be a lovely place for my dad <laughs> um, so yeah, but I think it's all the trials have gone quite well. Um, That's good. Um, so I think you know, still needs to be monitored mm-hmm. and um, checking that it's not going to cause problems down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mm-hmm. think it's really positive, um, and they seem to be spreading across the, <laughs> the country. <laughs> really the well. are taking <laughs> over. <laughs> Which may or may not be helped by some illegal releases. I was going to touch on that. Yeah, I was like, you say authorised. Yeah. <laughs> In a way that so there are implies there are unauthorised ones. <laughs> and then there's definitely some unauthorised populations. Which Where do they come from? Just a chap in his back garden who's got a beaver and decides to release it. I don't know, Lou. I haven't been doing it. <laughs> uh, Disclaimer, Emily has not released any beavers illegally. Um, yeah. Um, I, I assume that they come from UK populations. Authorised mm. um, UK populations mm-hmm. and then uh, go from there. But who knows? Who knows? Yeah. DNA test them. Yeah. See where they came from. Put them on the stand. Yeah. Question. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, but they're now in Kent. Oh, so wow. Pretty, Travelled pretty, pretty far. close to us right yeah. here in Croydon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think I think they'll be across a lot of the UK within the next sort of 10 years, I think. Yeah. Um, and we've had a lot of success with like otter populations mm-hmm. as well. So they went through quite a big decline. Mm-hmm. Um, and since the 1990s, there's been a lot of effort into um, helping them recover. Mm-hmm. And now they are really widespread in mm. Scotland and sort of spreading back 
across um, the rest of the UK. So what sort of, what efforts have gone into <laughs> getting their numbers back up, if you know? <laughs> uh, I think it's uh, sort of comes under their uh, protected species mm-hmm. level, so... So uh, upping, making sure that law enforcement is robust. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and making sure that there's consideration of the habitats mm-hmm. and the protection of their resting places um, and just we have got a lot better at looking after our watercourses mm-hmm. um, and stopped dumping things into watercourses uh, as a, <laughs> a method of getting rid of things uh, so that's that's really good um, and with that you get improved water quality and everything like that which in turn makes it so much better for humans as well as the wildlife yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's all, you know, to quote the Lion King, it's the circle mm. of life, isn't it? It is, mm. yeah. <laughs> it's all the circle of life. Which, yeah. uh, fun fact, actually, our ecology teacher, lecturer, sorry, at university told us to watch it, didn't he? That was, um, yeah. I do not remember that. Oh, well, mine did. <laughs> uh, Nick Ray, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He was mm. like, go watch the Lion King if you want to get a little mm. idea of basic ecology and I was yeah. like okay mm-hmm. mm. I can do that <laughs> yeah that's, yeah there's I think there's a lot of lessons in the Lion King <laughs> on ecology so like over hunting and things mm. like that will obliterate all your populations <laughs> and things um so don't over harvest and things like that mm. especially like fish populations mm-hmm. as well you know we need to take a sustainable level yes and be mm-hmm. providing for wildlife if we're taking wild mm-hmm. species for consumption um give and take yeah it's a symbiotic relationship yeah you know like it, it is the food chain you know mm-hmm. like um and we need to recognize that we're at the top of it so we need to look after the rest of it like you know the lion will just hunt what it needs won't it and, and won't yeah. you know overtake and just get get take what it can get when it can catch it and yeah that's become something that's far too easy for us isn't it like with mass farming and yeah and mass growth of of soy and grain and such for for animal feed so yeah it just needs to be done at a more sustainable level doesn't it which is entirely possible just yeah we need to be less greedy perhaps <laughs> yeah yeah. Um. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was going to say that um, they, I can't remember who did the study. <laughs> so if you want to look it up, Sorry you can't. <laughs> uh, but they were saying about how many Earths, um, uh, based on the resources that we are currently mm. using how many earths would we need mm-hmm. I, uh, think I have seen that mm-hmm. and i think they said four um that's a good job we've got a couple in uh, in reserve then <laughs> <laughs> yeah we are prepared <laughs> um yeah so i think it all comes down to consumption mm-hmm. especially us in a sort of western world context where yeah. we and get what we want and when we want it when we want it and disposable cultures and things like that i think we need to mm-hmm. rein it all back in yes definitely i think 
the UK species are, are doing doing what well, some of them are doing all right. So some of them are doing some all right. Some of them are doing well. Right. Some of them are doing news. well. Yeah. And some of them not so well. Mm. Um, but I think just on ongoing mm-hmm. ongoing work and um, there's always things as well you that you can do. You can volunteer with your local wildlife trust or um, sort of uh, groups. So they tend to have like dormouse groups mm-hmm. or yes. reptile and amphibian groups. Which groups, is really interesting, yeah. I think, for people in the UK because I think people don't really realise the amount of reptiles mm. um, that we have and are surprised when they sort of see them about. And yeah. Like a slow worm is like my, one of my favourite things in the world. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the amount of times people go, we don't have snakes in the UK, and I go, actually, we do. <laughs> <laughs> retract, retract. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so we have a we have a lot of really nice wildlife. Yeah, in the UK, um, and I think we're getting there in making wildlife a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, we've um, got. Net uh, biodiversity net gain as well, which is a new. I say new. It's sort of been mm. been coming in for a while. Um, where it stipulates that everything that we do has to have a positive gain on the um, on what the wildlife. Amazing. So, um, I think that will do really good, and you have to back it up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you can't just say, oh yeah, I'm definitely doing that, and then that's it. You have to, you know, show yeah. the impact of what you said you'll do. Yeah, and they build into um, so protected species licenses mm-hmm. or planning permission and mm-hmm. things like that. They build in conti- uh, conditions that you have to follow, um, which um, will enforce you having that positive effect. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they've just made a sort of metric um which sort of values habitats um and um you've got to improve what you've got like mm. in the longest sort of say oh we're only going to have a little impact um because everywhere having a little impact um, mm. and lots of little impacts build to a big impact absolutely um, so by making sure that everybody's doing something positive um then I think we can really help. Um, and I think the, we've got a lot more um, coverage in mm. media mm-hmm. and public agenda as well. Um, is People want to protect wildlife. Yeah. They do care about it. We do. Um, <laughs> so I think people are happy to put a sort of onus on yeah. um, protecting it and making sure it's protected. That's lovely. That's a lovely little message to sort of end on there. <laughs> people want to protect wildlife, and we are yeah. protecting wildlife, yeah. and it's it's getting better. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of um, a lot of people that we work with, we work with a lot of landowners mm-hmm. and things like that that aren't involved in schemes, but they'll they'll be in sort of close proximity. Uh, and they they always care about. They want to know mm. what things are living in their garden. Yeah. How can they manage their garden to bring in more wildlife? Um, so I think that's everybody yes. cares. Yay! 
Oh, giving the world a little hug. <laughs> That's lovely. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much for talking to us and telling us all about um, all about what you do and what it involves. Um, now I've got a couple of final questions, yeah. which um, just little sneaky disclaimer. Oh. I did I did reveal the questions earlier, so yeah. I had a chance to to I think. <laughs> but whether she has or not, that's another question. <laughs> Yeah. So the first one of those was, if you could have any animal adaptation on your human body, what would it be and why? I would like to fly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Easy. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think it would just be, one, it would be a really nice, quick mode of transport. And carbon neutral. Carbon neutral, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, I just, I'd quite like to see the world from a different perspective as well. From the sky, mm, yeah. Um, You're not scared of heights, then. I I am terrified of heights, <laughs> but I think if I could fly, I would be less scared yes. of heights. See, in your control, then, isn't it? If you yeah. fall, it's, it's yeah. Where you've done something. Heights at the moment is. Yeah. <laughs> I can't fly, so <laughs> therefore I am scared. Yeah, yeah. makes um, sense. Yeah, cool. And my my final question for you is: mm. in a movie of your life, who would play you? <laughs> Um, you did prepare me for this question, <laughs> and I have not thought of anybody. <laughs> um, uh, I think I'd want... Obviously, you want somebody like more attractive than yourself to play oh, yeah, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just because when people think about it, they'll not think of you, they'll think of the, the attractive person yeah. <laughs> playing you. So, <laughs> that's... Uh, that's one of my requirements. <laughs> um, and yeah, I suppose uh, just somebody ethical mm-hmm. and um, and handsome. <laughs> <laughs> what but, about? Uh, oh, I don't know her stance on ethics, ethical things. I was going to say Charlize Theron. I, I am terrible with knowing who people are. She was the only thing I can think of mm. that she was in off the top of my head is Monster's Ball. No, Monster, which is about a female serial killer, and she looks totally different to what she actually does. Uh, what else is she in? Um, I might just say Margot Robbie. Okay, yeah, we'll go with that. I don't know, also, I'm not sure on her <laughs> ethics of stuff. Yeah. She was in Neighbours, and I like Neighbours. Yeah, so. me too. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she does a good British accent. So. She does. And so she's very covered, attractive. Yeah. So very attractive. All, yeah. all the bases. I mean, she looks just like me. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, you can't see us, but I am effectively talking to Margot Robbie. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on that, though, I think that wraps us up unless there's like a takeaway message or anything you'd like to say as a final closing thing. no pressure you don't have to. no pressure you can just say that um, I, I think i'll just i'll just sign it off yeah <laughs> that's yeah. all folks yeah. <laughs> that's a wrap yeah. oh well, thank you so much for for agreeing to me um talking talking to you and and sharing sharing all that you have with the listeners um yeah, Emily's my first in-person interview, yeah. so that's exciting too. <laughs> so hopefully the audio might be a bit better on this one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for thanks for asking. That's, that's yeah, that's, that's quite nice. nice. Yeah. <laughs>
Put that down on the old CV. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just tell a lot of people what I've done on yeah. podcast. Yeah. yeah. Or listen to it first and then see if you like it. <laughs> yeah. Send them all in. Yeah. To everyone in my address book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, please do. Yeah. <laughs> all spread spread the word. Cool. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank and thank you for imparting some knowledge and information on all of us. Oh. Very welcome. I hope it was insightful. It was. It was a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you very much. That's us signing off. Thank you for listening, everyone. Just a little reminder that I do now have um, some social media handles for the podcast. Um, So if you want to contact me for any reason about anything at all, I do have an email address. It's turnonthelight.com pod at gmail.com that's turn on the light pod at gmail.com and on instagram i am at turn on the light underscore pod so please go and follow for some silly little posts you know pictures of animals pictures of my guests upcoming news about the podcast all different things like that and on twitter i am at saving species that's at saving species I've never been much of a Twitter user, so that one will be a work in progress. It'll be a learning curve. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but please do follow um, and help me out, you know, if you have some interesting stories that you'd like to share and and uh, I can tweet about those and retweet. Um, yeah, so they are my social media handles. Um, and I just wanted to also take a moment at the end of the episode, um, just something that I read this week um, to just remind people to take a step back and disconnect sometimes. Um, I know that's the irony of saying that whilst recording a podcast on my phone that I will then share on social media sites, but I think it's important to take a step back away from those things um, and just get back into nature, hear the sounds, see the sights, smell the smells, just connect. Um, Yeah, I think that's what I've learned from having a dog who I've almost had for a year now. Um, I'm more present on every journey every time I step outside because I'm not with my headphones on, I'm not looking at my phone, I'm with my dog, and and that's just a really lovely place to, to be in. So I just read an article about that this week, and so I wanted to, to share that with everyone, and just, yeah, remind everyone to connect with nature a little bit, makes you happy. <laughs> cool, so thanks for listening, and uh, I'll see you all in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks, bye-bye. <laughs>